So the name of this talk tonight is The Blue True Dream of Sky. And it's a talk that I wrote recently. on retreat in Yucca Valley. And uh, it's a talk that I'm really happy to give. And it was inspired by um, one of the people who I consider one of my teachers, uh, a mentor in some sense, uh, a hero in some sense, who had died in April, actually died while I was at Yucca Valley. And this is the poet, Allen Ginsberg. And so in his honor, we have, we have him here in some sense. And, uh, and Alan, I hope you'll indulge me wherever you are. And I ask his indulgence for a few different reasons um, that I can offer this talk in his honor. And also because I'll be reading to you from Howell, from this one, mainly his most famous poem. Um, and I'll be editing it a little, because if not, it would mostly take up the whole time we were here to read Howell. But I, I had heard he had liver cancer right before I was leaving for Yucca Valley. And uh, I just saw a little article that said he had liver cancer. And um, I just, for some reason, decided to grab my copy of Howell, which I've had for over 30 years now. And, um, and I grabbed it, and then I was down at Yucca Valley for a while, and then uh, you know, we don't actually read the newspaper regularly down there. So it was a couple days after he died that I heard he died. And I just felt like I wanted to write a talk dedicated to him. And I, I didn't necessarily agree with everything Allen Ginsberg did or said or wrote. But I have felt a great sense of gratitude to him for his poetry, for his courage, for his life, and for uh, the impact it had on my life. So I would like to dedicate this talk to him out of my respect and out of my love and out of my gratitude. And if you don't know uh, much about Allen Ginsberg, I'll give you a little background. Um, he grew up in, uh, uh, on the East Coast uh, in a kind of a leftist, intellectual, creative, literary family. His father was a poet. Uh, and he himself was a, a very left-wing. I think his mother was very involved with the Communist Party. Um, and he was a dropout. He was a homosexual where it was never a question about coming out for Alan because Alan was Alan. 
Uh, and so, and then we're talking about in the 40s and in the 50s, uh, where people weren't coming out at all. Alan was just who he was. Um, he was a nonviolent activist all his life. He believed deeply in nonviolence, and he believed deeply in activism. And he opened his mouth whenever he saw fit. Um, <clears throat> he was a beatnik and really gave birth with uh, Kerouac and Cassidy and William Burroughs and Gary Snyder to that whole uh, um, world of creativity and rebellion that was ended up being called the Beatniks. And he was one of the few who, maybe along with Gary Snyder, made the transition into being a hippie and one of the leaders, if there were any, of the hippie era. He was the person who actually coined the phrase flower power. And he was born Jewish. He had a long period of Hindu practice. I actually met him when he was chanting all the time and chanted with him in New York. Uh, and he ended up a Buddhist. I read after his death, there were a number of stories, uh, articles about Alan, and I've actually been collecting them. I've had quite a stack now. Um, he, it's, he said that he quit Columbia. He was going to school as an undergraduate, and he quit. And he claimed to have a mystical vision while masturbating in East Harlem. <laughs> This is, this is what he said, that he had a mystical vision while masturbating in East Harlem in which he heard an angelic voice reciting William Blake's Songs of Experience. <laughs> and so I thought I would read to you a little bit of William Blake. It might have been what Alan heard. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> And, and I like to read Blake, especially these Blake poems, and imagine this is what Alan heard, because there's so much the Dharma in these two little poems that I'm going to read you. And listen, you'll hear. First, I think of this as a poem about mindfulness. To see the world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. It's just the practice of being present. And it is all there, the world in a grain of sand. And you know this if you practice. The second short poem that Alan might have heard while he was being awakened uh, that kind of, for me, really captures the Four Noble Truths. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Once more? Yeah. Yeah. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. 
But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's the truth of suffering and freedom from suffering. So, somewhat, this talk is uh, an excuse to talk about gratitude. And sometimes when I give Dharma talks these days, I try to give some very traditional Dharma talks, and then I try to give some very untraditional ones. This is on the untraditional side. And they're untraditional only in the sense I might not draw so much from the Buddhist scriptures or the traditional lists of what we talk about. But it's, for me, they're about seeing the Dharma everywhere, because the Dharma is everywhere. That the Dharma is here and now. And that if we're not seeing it and understanding it here and now, I think we need to look closer. And so, one of the ways I think about the Dharma, the truth, in Buddhism, an awakening of the Dharma, is that the Buddha uh, awakened to a very profound truth, and he offered it to us. And it's really helped me see much more than I knew, and understand much more than I realized was uh, possible, or here, or what, what this life is about. But there have been other teachers also who showed me, who awakened me in some way to a truth that was greater than what I knew. And Allen Ginsberg is one of those people. And I would like to just mention a few others because they come in many forms and shapes and you might reflect for a moment about who's awakened you, who helped you see uh, what what reality was or what it is to be a human being, who helped you see beyond what you knew. So I'll mention a few names for me, who people have been important, who you may recognize and you may not. Gordy Howe. <laughs> so a few people <laughs> might recognize Gordy Howe. <laughs> uh, Gordy Howe is a hockey player. And when I was a boy, uh, he was one of my heroes. And he was an amazing hockey player because he always looked like he wasn't working hard at all. And he would skate in a way that he looked like he was skating so in such a relaxed fashion that you, you could imagine he was going to get to the puck or, be, or, or all of a sudden he'd be beyond the person he was trying to get beyond. And there was a sense of ease and grace and beauty and skill and presence concentration, awareness, flow, in Gordie Howe. In some sense, I think of him as the first artist I ever recognized. You could see the artistry, the beauty, um, the presence in his playing. And he was also quite a, uh, uh, I'm happy to say, quite a um, kind man. I met him a number of times. 
And the first time I was about 12 years old and I was working at the Michigan State Fair and he came up, he walked up with his family and I was on this big stool selling like pork pie hats and things like that. And I looked up and there was Gordie Howe and I fell off my stool. <laughs> and he was just great. He just waited for me to get up and he, he could see he had an effect on me. And he was totally gracious and kind with me and spent time talking to me and uh, totally sweet. So Gordie Howe. Some obvious, one very obvious uh, hero was Bob Dylan, who really woke me up to the world in a whole nother way, to the personal and the political, and the fact that there was no separation in some sense. I'm going to try and turn this down a little bit. And please wave at me. Do you need to wave yet? You can hear, okay. Um, another man who had a big impact on me was John Coltrane, saxophone player, incredible musician, an incredible man of spirit. The first man I knew and understood lived and was a spiritual person, and his music was an expression of his spirituality. Uh, it was totally inspiring to me. And I, I was a musician in my younger days, and he was one of my heroes. And, and he helped me hear way beyond what I knew was possible. What it meant to play, what it meant to be present in a moment and express that. And Allen Ginsberg. So some of the heroes who pointed me to something greater, something beyond what I knew. You could again reflect for yourself about who, who might have done that for you, whether it was somebody famous, as the names I'm mentioning, or somebody not famous, but who really helped you see, who opened your eyes. In the Buddhist scriptures, they talked about people with a little dust over their eyes, and the help, Buddha helped to open their eyes, awaken them. And I first read Alan when I was 14. And I actually got to meet him for the first time when I was 16. I went to Bean in New York. You remember Beans? <laughs> now we're trying to just be here. <laughs> we're not trying to be in so much anymore. <laughs> and what was inspiring to me as a 14-year-old dealing with you know, what 14-year-olds deal with, like, you know, what's cool and how, what a drag your parents are and what's important in life and why are all these people running around doing all this stuff and what, what you know, what's this all about? And what's really meaningful? I felt like he spoke to me. He, he was willing to say things, my parents, my family, the community that I was in. Nobody was talking about what Allen Ginsberg was talking about. <clears throat> and his courage was quite inspiring to me. And especially reading Howell, his courage to talk about the truth of the way things are. This is our practice, is to see how, how are things. What's the truth of things as they are? And Alan had a great courage all his life to name it as he saw it. <clears throat> and he was willing to name the uh, hypocrisy in America. 
the denial of the sacred in America, the denial of the humanistic, the splitting of blaming the whole Cold War era. He didn't buy it. So I'd like to read to you a little bit from Howell tonight. And I want to first say how I understand it as the Dharma. And this first part, first of all, just to say it's dedicated to Carl Solomon, who was a writer and friend of Alan's, who was in a mental institution, Rockland State Hospital. And the first section is his howl about what's going on in society. And the second section is his kind of old prophets ranting against the people who the situation, the conditions that allowed this to happen. And the third part is his compassion for Carl Solomon. And the fourth part, which is called footnote to Howell, is really the view of awakening. So I'll read to you a little, just to give you a little flavor of this poem of Alan, of what it was like in 1952, 54, 55. And the, just so you know, the poem itself, um, it's kind of um, inspired by the bebop music, which he was inspired by, which he loved, of Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Charlie Mingus, Thelonious Monk. And so the cadence, a lot of the cadence has a little bit of that bebop flavor to it. It uh, kind of inspired by the um, riffing or improvisations that the saxophonists, trumpet players, trombone players would play back and forth with one another. <clears throat> I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high sat up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated. Whole intellects disgorged in total recall for seven days and nights with brilliant eyes, meat for the synagogue, cast to the pavement who studied Plotinus, Poe, St. John of the Cross, telepathy and Bach, Bop Kabbalah, because the cosmos instinctively vibrated at their feet in Kansas, who loaned it through the streets of Idaho, seeking visionary Indian angels who were visionary Indian angels, who thought they were only mad when Baltimore gleamed in supernatural ecstasy who scribbled all night rocking and rolling over lofty incantations while in the yellow morning there were only stanzas of gibberish, who cooked rotten animals, lung, heart, feet, tail, borscht and tortillas, dreaming of the pure vegetable kingdom, 
who threw their watches off the roof to cast their ballot for eternity outside of time and alarm clocks, alarm clocks dropped on their heads every day for the next decade. <laughs> who drove cross-country 72 hours to find out if I had a vision, or you had a vision, or he had a vision, to find out eternity. Who fell on their knees in hopeless cathedrals, praying for each other's salvation and light and breasts, until the soul illuminated its hair for a second. He goes on describing the search for the numinous in 1950s post-war America. And he says, Ah, Carl, while you are not safe, I am not safe. And now you're really in the total animal soup of time. And who therefore ran through the icy streets obsessed with the sudden flash of the alchemy of the use of the lips of the catalog, the meter, and the vibrating plane. He goes on. And then he, and then he gives his old world prophet roar. He says, what sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imaginations? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch the heavy judger of men. Do you know this Moloch, the heavy judger? We all have it. Moloch the incomprehensible prison, Moloch the crossbone soulless jailhouse and congress of sorrows, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned governments. Moloch, whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch, whose blood is running money. Moloch, whose love is endless oil and stone. Moloch, whose soul is electricity and, and banks. Moloch, whose poverty is the specter of genius. Moloch, whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen. Moloch, who entered my soul early. Moloch, in whom I am a consciousness without a body. Moloch, who frightened me out of my natural ecstasy. Moloch, whom I abandoned. Wake up in Moloch. They broke their backs, lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven, which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American River. Dreams, adorations, illuminations, mere religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit. And then he speaks to Carl Solomon directly, his compassion, his love for his friend, his comrade. Carl Solomon, I am with you in Rockland, where you're madder than I am. I am with you in Rockland, where you must feel very strange. I am with you in Rockland, where you imitate the shade of my mother. His mother died in a mental institution, Helen.
I am with you in Rockland where your condition has become serious and is reported on the radio. I am with you in Rockland where you bang on the catatonic piano. The soul is innocent and immortal. It should never die ungodly in an armed madhouse. I am with you in Rockland where 50 more shocks will never return your soul to its body again from its pilgrimage to a cross in the void. And he talks about his dream of Carl Solomon coming to him in the night to his Berkeley cottage. And I will wait. I'll say a little bit about the last part a little later. I'll read you a little bit of it. So I want to switch gears just a little to talk about gratefulness now more clearly. You have a sense of Al in my relationship, the poem Howl, which had such a big impact on me as a boy, and still does. Part of gratitude is grateful for people who are willing to say the truth. And it's part of the gratitude I feel towards the Buddha, that he was willing to roar, his lion's roar, and say the truth. And it almost didn't happen. If you read the Buddha's scriptures at first, he wasn't going to teach. He just couldn't see that people would get it. It was too subtle. It was too simple in some ways. And he was uh, encouraged by one of the Brahma gods who came down, who saw that he wouldn't teach, to encourage him to teach, and that we are now sharing the blessings of that, that he was encouraged and he decided to teach. And I think of gratefulness in practice as a recognition of what's already here. That when we're present, when we're aware, when we're open, when we're intimate with our experience, with our breath, with our body, with our hearts, with our minds, with the environment, the sounds and sights and smells, we discover that gratitude is here. It's not something we have to do much about. That being present is always the gateway to gratitude. And in my practice, and one of the ways I like to think about practice and teaching is that this is a practice where we don't take anything for granted. That the practice only happens now. And that we don't know exactly what a breath is, or what a body is, or what a human being is, or what a Eugene is. And that when we allow this quality of unknowing, we don't take it for granted. That we see the truth of the changing nature of things. When we see impermanence. When we see that this moment is gone. And this moment is gone. And this talk is half over. And this evening will be gone. 
It help, it's a support for us. If we let it impact us, if we really let ourselves see the truth of impermanence, then we don't take things for granted. And we are grateful. We're immediately grateful. We're grateful just to be here because we know we won't always be here. When we don't take things for granted, we don't we, we acknowledge the truth. We don't know what's going to happen next. You, you don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> At least half the time, I'm not quite sure either, to be honest. It changes, even though there's some words on paper. So as we practice, as we pay attention, as we're mindful, as we're present, as we're aware, there is a sense of the unknown, the absolute mystery of things, and of our gratitude to be here, to see what, what is going on. Who are we? Where are we? We get to see also that things aren't what we think or as we thought. If we really pay attention, the experience of a breath is not the thought of a breath. It's not even the label in or out. Not the experience. It's something quite more alive and mysterious and amazing. Or a sensation, or a feeling of sadness, of fear of happiness. Any of those feelings aren't those words. Those are good words and, you know, they're accurate words, but they're just words. But when we really come into the present right now, if you feel your body as you sit here, if you really see, pay attention to the sights. As we become present, the world becomes alive. And when we're alive, when we're present, we're grateful. We're happy to be here. We're not lost in our minds. You know, there's a t-shirt, meditation, it's not what you think. <laughs> not only is meditation not what we think, nothing is what we think. And so when we awaken in this way, through this practice, we begin to see things with new eyes. I'll read you a little story from Joko Beck, who was a piano student at Oberlin in her youth. She's a Zen teacher. And she talked about wanting to play, study with one of the great piano teachers there. And that she went, finally she got her chance and she went in and she says, when I went in for my lesson, I found he taught with two pianos. He didn't even say hello. He just sat down at his piano, he played five notes, and he said, you do it. And she was supposed to play it just the way he'd played it. And she was a you know, pretty decent piano player, played with some small symphonies and things. So she played, and he said, no. And he played it again. And she says, I played it again. And again he said, no. Well, we had about an hour of that. And each time he said, no. 
She says, in the next three months, I played about three measures of music. And uh, I cried most of those three months. He had all the marks of a real teacher, that tremendous drive and determination to make the student see. That's why he was so good. At the end of three months, one day he said, good. <laughs> what had happened? She had listened beyond how she knew how to listen when she first went there. She really listened. Her ear opened up. She really heard it. She didn't take it for granted because she was a piano player. She knew how to play those five notes. I was, I was teaching some teenagers today who I never saw, and I won't see again. I had one hour to teach them mindfulness meditation. <laughs> and I just, all I could do was challenge them to be alive right now. That's really, I was, there was a certain kind of energy when you're teaching teenagers that comes. I don't know where it comes from. All of a sudden, I can be really uh, rambunctious, and, and I was. Um, wake up. I said, this is only about awakening right now. Wake up. Break your trance. And I told them, uh, this is something that I do with my daughter periodically. Uh, we sit together and we look at each other. It's a meditative exercise. And you can do this with your children, with your partners, with your friends, anybody who would do it with you. It's a little weird, but, you know, <laughs> look at them. Like, I do this with my daughter. I look at my daughter and I tell her, and she does the same. I said, now see that I'm not your father. And I'm going to look at you and see that you're not my daughter. And it's an interesting exercise. And she really, she likes it and she doesn't like it. <laughs> Both. And, and it helps break the trance of that role. You know? And of course I am her father and she is my daughter. But it's not the totality at all of who either of us are. And that when we break the trance, we're both more present with one another. So I told them that story. I said, do it with your parents. Take a look. See that your, your mother's not your mother. And they were like... <laughs> <laughs> so as we learn to not take things for granted, not only our, what we're mindful of, our body and our sensations and our thoughts, our, how the mind works, but also other people, not to take one another for granted. <clears throat> I find this totally exciting, that the world comes alive. 
And when we begin to come alive in this way and to not take things for granted, then we begin to see something that I think is a profound truth, which is that everything is given. That all is given. There is nothing that is not given. And notice how you feel, just to consider this, that what's given is um, the body is given, the emotions, the heart, that we have a heart, it's given. It didn't have to be this way. You know, you can see some movies where they have beings who don't have hearts or, or don't have thoughts or whatever. This is the way it is. This is what we've been given. Bodies, hearts, minds. This beautiful, you know, spirit rock. I mean, come on. It's been given. It's amazing. Actually, you gave it, a lot of you. You can appreciate that. Um, food. You know, who could have thought of bananas? I mean, really. If you look at a banana, could you imagine what was inside and that you could eat it? Or an, or an orange. Who would have known what was under the skin? Who could have imagined it? Who could have made it? I mean, when we really pay attention to things, it's amazing. Uh, there's this meta story that Joseph Goldstein often tells about a boy, young boy, kindergarten, first grade, was asked, what are the colors of apples? And he said, they're white. Mm-hmm. The teacher said, no, well, you know, who else? What are the colors? Of he said, no, no, they're white. Mm-hmm. She said, well, I don't think so, and went on and finally, he said, no, I'm, I know that apples are white. She said, no, well, apples are usually red or yellow, and sometimes they're green. He said, no, if you cut into them, they're white. <laughs> and we don't take things for granted. We look really closely that when we let go of our mind, our ideas, our concepts, that when we come into the present moment, here, right now, It's all given. The talk is being given. Food that you have, some of you, body, the heart and mind, the material world is given. It wasn't always like this. There weren't always these square buildings and air conditioning or night or skylights or, you know, it's not, and it might not not always be that way. I mean, there were caves once. I mean, look at the building and see that it's been given somehow. This building for us to use. Or the bowl, the bell. You know, somebody made it, shaped it. How did they even figure that out at first? It's not only been given in this moment, it's been given through the whole history of humanity is right here in this moment. One of my favorite Zen masters, EQ, great rogue Zen master, he says, this brick house I live in is really the sky and just as precious. And another of my favorites, Jack Cornfield said, living fully 
means jumping into the unknown, dying to all our past and future ideas, and being present with things just as they are. It is only by such surrender to the moments of truth that we can participate in the mystery of our lives. Lovely Christian contemplative teacher, Brother David Stendhal Rost, he says, gratitude is the full response of the human heart to that which is gratuitous, which is given. And when we enter into this, when we enter into opening to the fact that it's given, and it includes what's difficult. I want to just say that now. I'll say a little more in a minute. But it includes the whole show is given. Um, that when we open to the fact that things are given, we enter into belonging. Because we also are given. And when we recognize the gift of life, of breath, of a sunset, of the moon, we enter into belonging with it. We ourselves are here, are given, and we see the truth of selflessness, that it's all given. It's all given and it goes, and then the new is given, the next moment is given, and then the next moment is given. And so that's why I gave you some instructions today. And you can practice like that. You can just sit down and see, well, what's given in this 45 minutes? And you don't have to do anything about it. Just be mindful of what's given. Pain in the knee, a closed heart, a sense of spaciousness, a breath, a number of breaths. What is being given to you in these moments of practice and in the moments of your life? There's a way that this belonging is talked about in Buddhism. Dogen said, he said, to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to let go of the self. To let go of the self is to be enlightened by all things. So that when we study the self, which we do by paying attention in each moment, we start to see the impermanent nature, the suffering that's inherent in clinging, and that as we let go and we're present, we see that we are part of everything. Another way it's put by uh, Kalu Rinpoche, he said, we live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. So when we practice in the way we practice, we are practicing opening to what is given in each moment whether we like it or not, even opening to our reactions, which are given. And we learn to trust what's given and open to it. 
And it may not be what we wanted at times, but we can say yes to it for a moment. We can be present. We can belong, even with the difficulty of a given moment, a given day, a given event. And you'll notice there's something about gratitude, you know, that when we open in this way, we're grateful for our lives. And there's something how, when somebody gives us something, it's very interesting how we respond because we say thank you and we give something back. And that is also uh, an example of this sense of mutuality, of belonging, that something is given and then we give back. We say thank you. And the thank you is really nothing. I mean, what is thank you? It's a word. But it expresses our belonging, our mutuality. So grateful, grateful to Alan, grateful to the Buddha, grateful to people who are willing to say the truth. Buddha, Jesus, Gandhi, in the larger sense, or sometimes in the smaller sense, just your friends who are willing to tell you when you're a jerk or when you're missing something. There's a gratitude for that. For me, I'm grateful for those who are willing to name and acknowledge the infinite or the sacred or the beautiful or the magical in this world, the possibilities for what it is to be a human being. And here I'll read you the last part of Howell, which I just love, because Alan howls and rants and raves and expresses his sorrow in terms of Carl Solomon. And then this is the footnote. This is how he ends it. He says, holy, 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 holy. He goes on about 20 holies, H-O-L-Y. The world is holy. The soul is holy. The skin is holy. The nose is holy. The tongue and cock and hand and asshole, holy. Everything is holy. Everybody's holy. Everywhere is holy. Every day is an eternity. Every man's an angel. The bum is holy as the seraphim. The madman is holy as you, my soul, are holy. The typewriter is holy. The poem is holy. The voice is holy. The hearers are holy. The ecstasy is holy. Holy Peter, Holy Alan, Holy Solomon, Holy Lucian, he's just naming all his friends, Holy Kerouac. Holy the solitudes of skyscrapers and pavements. Holy the cafeterias filled with millions. Holy the mysterious rivers of tears under the streets. Holy New York, Holy San Francisco, Holy Peoria, Holy Seattle, Paris, Tangiers, Moscow, Istanbul. Who digs L.A. is L.A. (laughs) Holy the sea, holy the desert, holy the visions, holy the hallucinations, holy the miracles, holy the eyeball, holy the abyss, 
holy forgiveness, holy mercy, charity, faith, holy bodies, suffering, magnanimity, holy the supernatural, extra brilliant, intelligent kindness of the soul. Mm. Tremendous appreciation, gratitude. So I'm, I'm quickly trying to edit this talk, <laughs> even as I speak. Just a few more words in practice in terms of gratitude. In the Tibetan tradition, there is a practice of consciously taking one's unwanted suffering and sorrows and struggles and using them as practice. And it's very powerful to do this and, and that they consider these difficulties of such great value that they have this prayer and the prayer goes, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be fulfilled. That's a very powerful intention to make, a very powerful practice. And you can see it. You can see it in the Dalai Lama, who has the amazing wisdom and compassion to talk about the Chinese, to refer to the Chinese as my friends, the enemy. And so we can be grateful for the difficulties, that they will awaken us if we are willing to be present, if we are willing to show up for them. Doesn't mean we don't respond to them in a variety of ways, but, but intelligent response comes by actually being present with whatever the difficulty is. Rumi talks about this in another way. He, ta he, he wrote, a. Uh, about a priest who prays for thieves and muggers because they have done me such generous favors. Every time I turn back to the things they want, I run into them. They beat me up and leave me in the road. And I understand again that what they want is not what I want. <laughs> Those who make you return for whatever reasons to the Spirit, be grateful for them. Worry about the others who give you delicious comfort that keeps you from your prayer. So a few more quick thoughts about gratitude that I'd like to just say. One is, I feel a lot of gratitude in this role as a teacher. It's quite an amazing role to be in. And also as a yogi, as a practitioner. That there's a tremendous gratitude to um, speak the Dharma and to offer it to people in a variety of settings. Um, and also to see how beautiful people are. It was quite striking today, these 
25 or 30 teenagers, um, many different cultures, mostly black, but many other cultures also, inner city kids, um, and just talking to them about the Dharma. They were so beautiful, the kids. I mean, they're so beautiful. And on retreat, uh, when you teaching a retreat like at Yucca Valley and people come in, people are so beautiful. You're all so beautiful. We're all so beautiful. And it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous opportunity to see it from this seat, from this role. And as a student, I find that a tremendous gratitude arises when I practice. I'm grateful to the Buddha. I'm grateful that the Dharma was given. I'm grateful that there are practice places. Uh, in Barry last year I was practicing, and it's just the heaven realm, especially the first six weeks of the three-month course before the winter comes. Uh, <laughs> and grateful to the teachers. Um, and it's really good to let oneself feel that. Gratitude for practice itself. I have to say a couple words about Ajahn Jumnian. <laughs> because he is so beautiful. And if you haven't seen him yet, he'll be back next year. Please come. He comes in, he's happy and grateful in all circumstances. And he really lives in this place. He comes in, he comes in to teach, he's walking in happy, 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 happy. He comes sit down here, he's laughing, giggling. He says, oh, I come to teach and you're all here and I get to teach the Dharma. I love the Dharma, I'm just grateful to teach the Dharma. And he says, but if I come in and there's nobody here, Oh, I get to sit, and I love to sit. I'm grateful to sit, and then I get to sit. And I come to America, and I, we have lunch out on the lawn, and people put things in my bowl that I've never seen before, tasted. And I, I gave him bagels for the first time. Uh, and he said, he said, oh, I love it. I get to try all these foods. I'm just grateful. Oh, where does all this food come from? And he said, and sometimes I have my bowl and nobody puts anything in it. And then I think, oh, this is good. I need to lose a few pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's grateful for that. And he really lives in this place. It's, he's an amazing man. Please, if you can come be with him, hang out with him. He's infectious. His, his happiness, his joy, his power, his awakening. It's quite, quite wonderful. And again, I, I like to use my daughter a little bit in, in Dharma talks. And something happened recently uh, that, I, that really fits here because she's, she's going to be 15 very soon and she's, she's a teenager and she doesn't actually want to hang out with me too much these days. You know, so I'm kind of dealing with being rejected a little bit and uh, trying to trick her into hanging out with me a little more. And, but um, but she does want to get around town, so she <laughs> so she likes me to chauffeur her, and I wasn't. There was a while I wasn't enjoying it, and I was I was uh, feeling crabby about it. Then I talked with a friend of mine, and they said, you know, this is your time with your daughter now, and I got it. 
I mean, I really got it. Oh, this is my time with my daughters when I'm chauffeuring her. So now I, I love to chauffeur her now because <laughs> it's my time with my daughter. And, I've, and I've, it's, it's become this great time for me. Even if she doesn't want to talk to me, you know, which she doesn't. Some, she loves to just sit there and read her books and stuff. But, but I'm grateful for this time because... In another year or two, she's going to be driving herself, or even worse, boys are going to be picking her up and driving her. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you about that next year. So, but, so <laughs> there's much we can be grateful for and to feel, and you can take some moments to do this in practice. And actually, when I do my bow at the end of my, I'm grateful. That's, I do a gratefulness practice. I'm grateful for body, heart, mind, for time, place, teachers, teaching. It's a little practice I do. And if you're interested, try it sometimes. See what it feels like. And I do it whenever I sit. It's grateful for the Dharma. And there's, I have a lot more, but I'm gonna, I have to edit. So, a couple things. I'll just finish with a few poems. Be simple enough. This is from E.E. E. Cummings. He says, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees and the blue true dream of sky. It was out there today if you looked up. And for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing, any, lifted from the know of all nothing, human merely being, doubt, unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears are awake. The eyes of my eyes are open. Hmm. Hakuin, great Zen master, said, all beings by nature are Buddha. You let that in, just start there. All beings by nature are Buddha. As ice by nature is water. Apart from water, there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Those who hear this truth even once and listen with a grateful heart, treasuring it, revering it, gain blessings without end. And I'll read you a little bit of Alan's last poem. He called it his funeral poem. 
It's called Gone, Gone, Gone. <laughs> he did have a sense of humor, Alan. <laughs> he says, yes, it's gone, 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 gone away. Yes, it's gone, gone, gone. Gone, gone, gone away. Yes, it's gone, 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 gone away. Yes, it's gone. <laughs> it's all gone away. Won't be back today. <laughs> gone, gone, isn't anymore. Gone to the other shore. Gone, gone, it wasn't here to stay. Yes, it's gone, gone, all gone out to play. Yes, it's gone, gone, until another day. <clears throat> no one here to pray. Gone, 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 yak your life away. Poets know about that. <laughs> yak your life away, no promise to betray. Somebody else will pay. The national debt, no way. <laughs> gone, gone, gone. <laughs> yes, it's gone. Wallet and all you say is gone. So you can wave your pay. It's gone, gone. Tomorrow's another day. Gone last Saturday. Turned old and gray. Yes, it's gone gone, bald and old and gay, gone, 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 white beard and cold, yes it's gone, cashmere scarf and gold, yes it's gone, 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 yes it's gone so far, far away to the home of the brave, down into the grave, Yes, it's gone, gone. Moon's beneath the wave. It's gone, gone. So I end this song. Yes, this song is gone. Gone to kick the gong. Yes, it's gone, gone. No more right and wrong. Yes, it's gone, gone, gone. Gone away. Let's sit for a minute. Wherever you've gone, Alan, may you be happy. Peaceful. Free from suffering. May all beings be happy including all the beings who sit here tonight. 
May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings awaken. Thank you for your attention. Drive carefully, leaving Spirit Rock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.